0: What's up world, I'm Matt Newberg from Hungry, and this is The Feed. Each episode, we'll dive into conversations with the industry insiders who are leveraging technology to shape the way we eat. On today's episode of The Feed, the Hungry Trends community sat down with Chaz Flexman, co-founder and CEO of Starday Foods, a next-gen food conglomerate that leverages best practices from the software industry to quickly test, launch, and iterate on CPG brands like All Day Seasonings and Gooey Snacks. In this episode, we'll chat about the processes that enable Starday to launch new brands for less than 250K in six months, how it approaches online and offline retail, and how the company likens itself to more of a Ford than a Unilever. All righty, I'm really excited to be joined today by Chaz Flexman, the co-founder and CEO of Starday, a next-generation food conglomerate leveraging the best practices from the software industry to enable speed, efficiency, and empathy in food and beverage product development. Prior to Starday, Chaz worked in venture debt for Silicon Valley Bank and was a partner at Andreessen Horowitz before turning to the operating side as a GM at Wink and a founding team member of Pattern Brands. Chaz, welcome aboard. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So you have a really fascinating background, you know, turning to, I guess, the dark side of entrepreneurship, but, um, you know, really kind of curious to kind of unpack that thread of how you went from that investing side over to, I guess, pattern brands in, in the, in the realm of consumer and now, you know, getting deeper into CPG on the food side, I uh, would love to hear more about that evolution and what, what, you know, brought you to found Starday.
1: Sure. So you know, I obviously was on the adventure side for a while, but I always kind of knew I wanted to be an operator uh, and ha- was lucky to have the opportunity to make the switch and, and uh, join a spin out of one of our portfolio companies called Wink. You know, definitely fell in love with the operating side. It's uh, so where I felt like I was just much more, you know, kind of in the right role for me uh, and what I probably wanted to be doing long term. Wink uh, was there for a year. It Sold off to Flextronics. I left shortly before that acquisition happened, but uh, definitely fell in love with the physical product space and, and realized that you know lots of people love to talk about the sales and marketing side of it, um, uh, not a lot on the supply chain and product development. And so went and spent a bunch of time in China with this company called PCH and a few others um, to really understand kind of best practices there around product development, supply chain, how you trade cash flow for margin. And had been looking at how do you build the next generation kind of uh, conglomerate around CPG, how do you build lo- kind of multiple brands, multiple product SKUs, uh, and had pulling the threads on it and uh, had gotten put in touch with the folks over at Gin Lane, uh, Nick and Emmett, and, and started talking to them. And three months later, quit my job to, to help uh, help found Pattern brands. When I left Pattern in, in 2020, I, I joined up with the folks over at Equal Ventures and was exploring this category uh, a bit as an EIR, uh, but really kind of the, the catalyst for starting was was seeing the rise of, of digital grocery and, and kind of uh, the penetration that mm-hmm. was happening, you know, going from single digit percentages to, uh, you know, 30 to 40% kind of when and where you looked. And, and one of the things I was kind of trained early on in my career at, at Andreessen was that like, anytime you see a platform shift, that's where asymmetrical outcomes can happen and, and where kind of these really big movements, you know, incumbents simply have a, an iron grip over over distribution as their moat. And and that was changing kind of right in front of our eyes with what was happening in, in digital grocery.
0: Yeah, totally. I mean, I think they saw, I mean, online grocery has seen basically four years of growth in about four weeks at the <laughs> beginning of the pandemic. So was was Pattern Brands the parent company behind our place? Um, no. The, the pan? Uh,
1: it was uh, Equal Parts and Open Spaces were the two brands that we launched while I was there.
0: Oh, I see. But Jin Lane was involved in the cookware as well, right?
1: Yeah, Gin Lane spun into Pattern Brands, and to kind of uh, took venture bunch of money and, and essentially closed down the agency to, to then kind of build Pattern. And I was kind of um, the non Gin Lane member of the founding team, but um, got it. Uh, but yeah, we launched two brands, about thirty SKUs or forty SKUs while I was there.
0: And what was kind of the thesis that you know led them to kind of go after this opportunity?
1: Uh, it was building products in and around the home, and how you kind of lead with brand to uh, to build kind of you know products that consumers kind of love every day and kind of, you know, enjoyment in everyday life. And so uh, the goal is to launch again multiple brands. You know, I think they've now pivoted into kind of acquiring Shopify brands, but um, uh, it was really, you know, there was kind of different opportunities that we saw kind of in and around the home that we wanted to build for consumers.
0: Got it. So, yeah, I guess I was really fascinated about the kind of software analogies to CPG that you're kind of alluding to in, in your blog post about I would I would love to talk about kind of the, legacy vertical SaaS players in this space and kind of some of the analogies that you've mentioned around building a Ford versus a Unilever and and what that kind of all means.
1: Yeah, I mean... I guess we kind of say like the product is the process the output is the brand you know what made Ford incredible was uh, the assembly line which led to the Model T being you know cheaper more reliable uh, more efficient kind of the whole nine yards and and so a lot of what we think about is like how do we understand what consumers want uh, and how do we uh, understand where where they have demand in kind of new categories new products new attributes uh, and kind of build yeah, and, and so we can kind of build accordingly and I think you know as consumers have come online you can tell a lot more around um, what it is that they that they want and and you know you know, they're not just kind of accepting what's on grocery store shelves, right? I think for the longest time, buyers, and distributors were kind of the dictators of kind of what was going into our mouths. And, and now as they've come online, they're searching for, discovering, finding, buying more of the products that fit their needs at the moment. And we, you know, kind of like want to tap into that. And so we're building food brands at the end of the day. We're trying to build the next, the next great F&B conglomerate and, and the next great Nestle. But, you know, we take a lot of practices, I think, from consumer um, software of hypothesis tests and learn how do you let the consumer kind of inform you of, of what it is that they, that they really want uh, and kind of applying that to F&B. And so it's not just me dictating what my taste is or what I think should be out in the world, right? There's no kind of none of, none of that N of one as a, as a founder and CEO. It's more like how do we run tests and kind of learn what it is Consumers actually want and let that kind of drive uh, the product development that we that we have on our side and kind of the brands that we bring to market.
0: Yeah. One of the things that I, I found interesting that you were, you know, writing about was this idea of like, you know, whether you're a software company that sells to, let's say, in your case, in your industry, CPG brands, or whether you kind of internalize that and keep that as kind of your secret sauce and double down on the value of that by actually launching your own brands. Can you talk us through the kind of the, the reasoning behind that kind of strategy of let's not sell to other brands, let's actually keep this in house and keep that as our kind of secret sauce and then, you know, fully capitalize on the value of that technology through the actual creation of brands?
1: Sure. Yeah, I mean, the goal was never to build the next spin to the next Nielsen. The goal is to build the next Nestle, right? And I think that there's sometimes anytime you build any level of software, people expect that you're just always going to be selling externally. And we wanted to kind of utilize it for ourselves and to kind of make us a more efficient, more capital efficient kind of version of of kind of what those historical conglomerates kind of look like. And so I think a lot of it was saying like, look, in the market, if you want to like capture capture Tam and capture kind of value, the value is actually in the brand that the consumers buy and being able to you know sell that and sell that repeatedly. And the insight just leads to like where to start to build and, and kind of what sort of products to build and so the scale that you get from a brand that's actually working is is kind of far superior than just you know selling a piece of software to kind of a a one off and so that was a lot of kind of the impetus behind it. It was never saying like, "Hey, we want to build a, a software company." It's like, "No, no, we want to build an F and B company that you know is actually bringing the food to consumers that they actually want, um, and and that it just it's a more efficient manner in doing so by leveraging a bunch of the practices that we that we've had in, in consumer software uh, to figure out kind of exactly where where and what we should build. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, we've got to make something that consumers love and that they want to like you know buy and and, and eat repeatedly. And so there's you know a big component of that as well too.
0: Fascinating. I mean, in my past life, um, I believe it or not, was a product manager, and you know, definitely studied a lot of kind of like the agile lean movement, and some of those practices there. I'm very kind of curious to dive into what you've kind of borrowed from the world of software development and what those modules kind of look like. I'm I'm totally unfamiliar with kind of the operating stack of some of these a modern and legacy kind of CPG brands that curious to kind of dive in and and hear more about what you've kind of borrowed from, from software and and then how that kind of ultimately makes the actual food product.
1: Yeah. You know, I think, I'll kind of touch on two things. Like one is moving from waterfall to agile, right? Uh, which is in the software world, something that that everyone's kind of well familiar with. It's saying like, great, this doesn't have to be a waterfall development cadence. Like you can do, you know, run multiple tasks for multiple different aspects of it and have, you know, development happening at, at, at stages at the same time, um, which leads to, you know, I think uh, better outcomes and quicker outcomes, certainly. The other aspect of it is kind of limiting feature creep. Right, like this is something we talk about in software a lot. It's like great, you don't you don't want to have all the features in your product. You want to have the features that consumers you know d- desire the most. And I think you see that a lot in food. You know, where if you look at a packaging, it's like all natural, gluten free, dairy free. Like insert kind of attribute here. It's like, all right, what are the three or four things that consumers actually want with this product? Like, what's really going to kind of unlock consumer demand and their willingness to pay? Is it things mm-hmm. like low sugar? Is it uh, dairy free? Is it palm oil free? In the case of our first brand, and so saying like we don't want to like have all the attributes because then you look at a packaging and, and they. Kind of you know it dilutes down the value of it. We want to want to make sure that we're honing in on um you know kind of those core characteristics and attributes that that matter. Um, and that's what allows us to actually move so quickly is like we're not we're creating a, a product requirement doc or a PRD or a spec around a brand that has like great it used to be these like 50 things. It's like no no these are the, the three or four ones that actually matter so let's make sure we're developing around that and, and understanding mm-hmm. if it can be done
0: fascinating yeah the the waterfall approach is is definitely something that can get you into big big trouble yes. and um so many interesting kind of um, tropes in the product world of yes. product development that um uh, I, I kind of cringe at now when i think back to my my past life but um but they are valuable lessons mm-hmm. um i mean so can you share with us like I guess, like the standard way of doing things in this industry versus the way you're doing it. How much cheaper, how much faster? What are the cycles looking like that you've been able to kind of get down for these two brands that you've launched? Sure.
1: So I think, you know, a lot of consumer brands are started the same way and there's certainly kind of nothing wrong with this. It's kind of just the way it's been done, which is largely normally coming out of a founder who who found a problem, right? Like they had allergens as a kid, so they're going to create like an allergen-free cookie brand and and use that qualitative insight to kind of drive a lot of their product development around like what it is that they're going to build. You know, I think we've started, we've shifted from a different lens and say, like, great, we want to start with kind of a, a data set around, you know, what it is that consumers want, where that's a trend that's happening like a, um, like a dietary trend like keto, a product category like a non-meat jerky, an ingredient like a turmeric, a, a behavior like edible beauty or permissible indulgence or convenience, and kind of orient around that. And so I think, you know it's it's just starting from very two very different places of of someone saying like hey this is this is what i've seen versus like where do we sh- see this is showing up uh, across like a much wider purview you know, I say that we can build a brand in, in, in less than six months for kind of less than 250K. And a lot of that's because we can really narrow down into what it is that we want to be building. It's not saying like, you know, it's not the whole host of possibilities and feature creeps. It's saying like these are the three or four things that we know it is, uh, that we know that we, you know, need to kind of develop around. And then similarly, like it's not about the, my personal taste and texture Profile that I care about. It saying like, how do we, mm-hmm. how do we let consumers tell us that, and how do we do a bunch of testing, you know, uh, with kind of blended consumer surveys and 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 where we're putting products in their hands and having them try it, you know, across you know hundreds of, of consumers to say like, great, does this actually match the taste and texture profile that we that we um, are going for or that you'd expect? Uh, how does that kind of compare to similar kind of products in the market? You know, are the attributes that we you know. Like are developing around, do they actually matter to you? And making sure that you're kind of closing that loop because just because we figured out you know what needs to go on on the packaging doesn't mean that um, we've created a, a product that consumers love. We need to make sure that the taste and texture lines up with that. And before we kind of kick off any brand build or, or really kind of go forward, and so mm-hmm. uh, it's really trying to like narrow down and I almost say it's uh, like kind of carving wood into into kind of that final product and making sure that you're you're being very specific with uh, and intentional about what you're uh, what you're bringing to market and, and building a brand that consumers actually love and and that, um, uh, matters most with, like I said, the taste and texture and, and the flavor profiles, along with the attributes of, of, of what kind of goes into
0: it. So, so you have two uh, brands out on the market right now. You have gooey, which is a, a delicious cocoa hazelnut spread, um, which is a category that I recently learned about thanks to you guys. And then all day, which is going kind to of modern spices for, you know, the at-home chef. Um, so a lot of interesting trends, I'm sure behind both of those things that, Kind of would love for you to dive into, pick one of them, uh, you know, talk about how you identified the, you know, core consumer need, how you tested those, you know, iterations of the early product, and then finally getting it. Into the hands of customers through retail channels. You know what, what's that process like? Kind of take us through the, that kind of process.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'll start with GUI just because it was it was our first. Um, you know, we saw a bunch of trend data around kind of um, uh, vegan Nutellas, alternative kind of hazelnut spreads. I knew that there was something that we wanted to kind of build there. But truthfully, I thought it was going to be a vegan kind of hazelnut spread to, to be out of the gate. But we go from that where we, we're kind of understanding a bunch of these trends these trend signals and, and kind of where there's that consumer demand uh, and start running a bunch of tests a bunch of multivariate tests to kind of understand like all right what are the attributes that actually matter and, and what we found out is that actually low sugar tested way higher than, than vegan or kind of anything else mm. but by a long shot and that it was actually dairy free not vegan that uh, consumers really cared about but also palm oil free um, that consumers are caring more mm. and more about the environment and and what it is that uh, they're consuming and how that it, it impacts it and so these were kind of the attributes that like oh these are the three things that we have to kind of develop around. So it's not a vegan Nutella competitor, but it's actually a low sugar, dairy-free palm oil, free chocolate hazelnut spread. And so, you know, that's kind of how it kind of shapes down into that kind of product spec. From there, we do a bunch of kind of taste and texture profiling. We create kind of bench top samples and kind of small runs and kind of put that in the hands of consumers through a couple different programs that we use to make sure that we're matching up to, you know, what they'd expect from a competitor in the space and how it compares and what the NPS scores are and those attributes. And then we kind of step into kind of building those brands and then kicking them off once we kind of know that, all right, like the consumer data shows us that this is something that they want, and we're, we kind of know the, the flavor and, and texture profile, uh, and then we start, you know, developing the brand because we still have to create that emotional kind of human connection. These aren't white label; they're they're you know brands that have um, some depth to them, uh, and kind of developing it. When we think about our go-to market, we start with direct to consumer, uh, but we use direct to consumer most is kind of to understand our audience and kind of what they want and and, and capture certain um, attributes about their you know buying behavior. We then kind of step into marketplaces, so whether it's things like Amazon or you know others, to help kind of scale up and, and kind of build our brand in the eyes of consumers. Like there's a lot of traffic going to these sites. How do you kind of optimize and, and get in front of them? And then we kind of step from there uh, into into kind of big box retail, which we'll have some exciting stuff to announce uh, in the coming months. But really, you know, if you think about that kind of local regional specialty, then step into big box, the way that brands have operated for the last 30 years, we're kind of, you know, kind of putting that by the wayside and saying like, great, let's go direct, let's go to marketplaces where these consumers are today. Um, you know, it takes uh, the amount of effort and scale that you get to selling into a fairway market in New York, which is, I think, five doors uh, versus Amazon is, is quite different. And there's certainly nothing wrong with selling into small grocers. They're they're, they're fantastic. I'm an avid shopper of them. Uh, but the scale you get on something like an Amazon, it's certainly just a lot different. And so, you know, we, we kind of start kind of each of those and, and try to repeat that with every brand that we do, knowing that we want to kind of go from there into, into kind of big box, because that's, uh, that's, you know, where you, you really get levels of scale.
0: Yeah, I'm, I, I want to zoom in more on like kind of the multivariate testing and understand, you know, where that's happening. I'm assuming is that on paid search? keywords or or those kind of page search ads that you're kind of testing the different uh, taglines or where's that occurring and then also going looking at the physical product where are you actually iterating on the Formulation of these products, the branding of these products. Yep.
1: So the answer to multiverse is yes. It's it's a bit of everywhere. Um, uh, Wherever we can kind of show consumers different kind of variables and of of what a product would be and and capture their uh, their intent and their interests. Like we we definitely kind of use that, uh, which is um, shown in a number of different places, Uh, and even down to like how you change things like pricing to make sure you understand like what their willingness to pay is. That's you know we can spin up hundreds of different creatives to test ads. We can do it kind of anywhere that that they're kind of searching for discovering and buying uh, to make sure that we're, that we're really kind of honing in on it. In terms of actual the, the product creation, uh, one of my co-founders, uh, Lena, uh, she um, was a former head of R&D at French Laundry. She launched the first uh, gluten-free flour brand called Cup for Cup. has been doing product development um, as a multiple star Michelin chef. And so she kind of takes that PRD and kind of turns it into like, great, how do we kind of make this in the kitchen? And then how do we make this in a commercial kitchen of kind of a uh, larger scale? And how do we think about the formulation that it can actually scale up into you know, to kind of larger production. So, you know, she really kind of leads those R&D efforts and making sure that like, just because you, you know, see this in kind of CPG, just because you put something down on paper doesn't mean it can actually be made and, and making sure that like, this is, you know, you can actually meet those uh, specs that we, we know are important, while also kind of adding some creativity and, and kind of uh, human oversight to, to um, making sure we're developing what it is that the consumers actually want.
0: So what will, will the product ultimately taste the same if I buy it on you know D2C mm-hmm. or, or Amazon versus the big box retailers? there's some iteration that happens there? No, nope.
1: all the iteration happens before we ever go live. Uh, it's happened it. in... Before we even kind of kick off the building of a brand, it's it's uh, through surveying where we put that into hands of consumers, similar to like you know if a brand's selling at a a, a farmer's market, they get feedback from consumers around like what the product they you know they like or they don't. We do that in a a bit more like institutionalized way in in the way that we um, we have them try it and test and and kind of give us feedback. Uh, But same kind of similar sort of concept of making sure that we're we're building what consumers want. Got it. Um, But yes, once we're live, the Hopefully the fr- the first uh, one off the the manufacturing line and the millionth tastes exact same, and that's that's always the goal.
0: So yeah, th- this palm oil thing just kind of as an aside is interesting. I just saw a company called Zero Acre Farms raise you know yep. something close to forty million from some very big names. I'm kind of curious how that insight ca- kind of came about, and like what what the traditional options in the space, like from Nutella, were doing with that. And I could see this really play out with a lot of other practices and ingredients in you know the modern big cpg products that we're all used to buying and people just suddenly one by one just starting to you know throw pitchforks at at kind of the older models and say you know we're demanding this but like how how did you find that like that was the thing and what is the actual you know environmental impact of that and the health impact of that
1: sure i mean i i can't speak to all the specifics of the impacts of, of palm oil that's that's um Uh, probably a longer conversation for another day, but a lot of that kind of information's out there. I think um, this is something that consumers had kind of raised to us um, through a bunch of our survey and through a bunch of our multivariate testing and the way that they reacted and and, uh, kind of voiced their feedback. Uh, And yeah, it was surprising. It was... um, more comments than I can I can you know even kind of remember um about consumers saying like hey does this have palm oil palm oil is bad like ooh and, and commenting kind of their their uh lack of interest in products that that have that in it um and just being aware of kind of the environmental impact. Uh, and so for us that was like a a kind of it's taking the ground that like look sustainability matters in this category and 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 making sure you understand kind of the ingredients and, and some of the impacts that they have. Uh, and not that we're, you know, going to kind of be projecting those opinions. But again, it, it's consumers kind of telling us what, what it is that they really want. And so that was kind of the, the impetus for us to kind of explore like, great, can you make these products without palm oil and not just a like a synthetic palm oil, not um, not one that has like deforestation kind of certifications, but actually like remove it from from the um, from the ingredient list altogether, which, you know, is is we took out sugar and palm oil, which are like two of the bigger ingredients out there. So it's, it's not no small, no small feat. It's no small task.
0: Very cool. Uh, how do you go about starting at the drawing board and, and saying, here's where we want to focus? Like, you, it seems like you start very narrow, right? And that's kind of like how you're able to be so nimble. You're not just trying to build some sort of go after some generic category and just say, we'll we'll do it like... And with a modern twist, that these are specific key insights and trends that you're building products against. Like, where do you go about mining that kind of insight?
1: Yeah. So again, it's it's how do we find forward-looking insight around the trends that are happening at kind of those different levels? You know, I'd say, can it be a ball of the ocean problem at times? Yes. Like, we know certain categories that we don't want to go into. Like, we're not going to do frozen. Uh, we're not going to do BEV. And then... Um, both for different reasons. One on the supply chain side, one on the uh, distribution side are just quite different. And then we start to say like, great, where does consumer demand lie? Where are we seeing these trends kind of happening and, and kind of taking hold? One of those things, like I said, like edible beauty or uh, certain diets that are, that are starting to become more prevalent as, as, consumers kind of understand, you know, the impact that, that food has on them, you know, which certainly has become more and more prevalent over the last couple of years. And so it's, again, we're constantly looking for, those different spikes of consumer demand that we can that we can kind of seek out and find, unless and saying like, hey, we want to build a snack brand or like a center aisle brand. It's it's trying to find like where it is these trends are and, and where we can kind of you know stack them up to make sure that we're we're tapping into that consumer behavior.
0: So uh, I would imagine you have like quite the diverse team as far as like you have to have the culinary piece right to do the food science, and then you have to have like a very kind of engineering focused team as well to build the factory processes and the modules to, you know, ultimately build the product. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about how your teams are structured to kind of deliver on those products in a, in, in a lean way?
1: Yeah, uh, we certainly look different than your average F&B brand, that's for sure.
0: You know, we've got everyone from data
1: scientists to... Uh, former consumer software PMs to you know kind of heads of growth. Uh, so you know the founding the other kind of co-founders Lily, who runs our platform side, was you know at Gin Lane and kind of running new growth initiatives at at, at Pattern. Lena was the the kind of R and D leads R and D was um, you know kind of a, a chef and you know uh, has done R and D within kind of food brands for 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 years. Uh, and then Caroline who. Is our head of growth? You know, was at one that could serve neobanks. She was at Slack. She was at uh, Google and a few other places. And so, yeah, we we kind of came from a, a couple of different kind of adjacent categories. But then obviously we've got you know everyone from director of operations to people who work on the platform team uh, and others to kind of you know um, build those different disciplines out. And so you know there's some folks that you you kind of see it in your normal F and B brand and others that are you know kind of very different and that's you know by design.
0: One of. Um... Our, re- our readers here was asking you know how how you're building things in-house versus choosing what to outsource as far as um you know the early days of the company still like you know buy versus build where how do you determine you know what it is you're going to use off the shelf do, do do a lot of these technologies even work for what you're trying to do Are they even tuned for the space? You know, that that sort of kind of thing.
1: Yeah, I'd say it's a whole host of answers. There are certain, you know, tools that we can use for consumer software that we can kind of repurpose for, you know, some of what we're doing on the platform side uh, and on the data science side. We're never going to probably own our own manufacturing. We'll, we'll use contract manufacturers like most other brands do. If you're not, you know, if you're a Nestle, you own your own factories. But outside of that scale, you know, but you typically don't. And so we work those third parties, which allows us to kind of be very nimble uh, on the manufacturing side, you know, that we kind of over, then oversee. We, you know, things like... Building the brands, we use kind of uh, we use one of the, the other co-founders of Pattern and one of the heads of brand at Jen Lane, uh, who since left, she's got a, a brand development agency. So we use partner with them on the brand builds and her team. You know, I mm-hmm. think uh, like any startup, there's always a, a balance of like, yeah, what you have in house versus where you kind of partner external and how that kind of changes over time as you kind of scale up uh, and those needs change. And so you know, I'd expect mm-hmm. more and more of those functions will be in house over time. It just you know, kind of a um Figuring out when when is that 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 when does that kind of switch happen, mm-hmm. um, and when do you kind of get more leverage by using external partners. So, right. you know, it's uh, the answer will constantly be evolving.
0: What are some of the priorities that if you look at kind of the, through the rest of the years? Or anything that you guys are looking to to make proprietary?
1: Um, I think it's more functions that we use third-party consultants for versus, like, hiring in-house. So, like, you know, uh, a VP of sales would probably be our next hire, uh, which makes sense, you know. um, Mm -hmm. As we scale out, we just need someone who can kind of go run that function versus doing more of a kind of one-off or, you know, other things on the creative side uh, as we build kind of ads and and, um, and kind of more of the... Uh, the creative needs for for our, for what we are doing on the marketing side of the house. Do we have something that's external versus internal? And so I think of it more like that versus like technology that we can leverage that, you know, we wouldn't rebuild on our own. Uh, I think there's plenty of tools that like are out there that, that work just fine for us and yeah. and we don't have to be kind of developed uh, uh, on top of it.
0: Makes sense. So kind of pulling on the kind of sales channel thread, um, you know i 've actually originally tried you through Foxtrot through one of andrea hernandez's uh snacks yeah. boxes, and uh, it was delicious and so you know they're they're kind of an omni channel retailer you 're in some you know talking to other more traditional retailers and marketplaces like Amazon. Talk to us a little bit more about how you have to set yourself up to to deal with each of these different channels. And on the other side, what what those partners are looking for from a brand like yours?
1: Yeah, so I'd say the difference is kind of the sales cycle and the cadence for a lot of these places. So, you know, traditional retailers have line reviews that happen, you know, kind of maybe once a year where, you know, they kind of open up the category, you know, brands pitch in and they select who's going to kind of be there for the next 12 months. Uh, and so... A lot of it is is understanding when those are and kind of building back from there and, and knowing what you need to show to kind of step into a line review versus something like an Amazon or, um, you know, a bunch of the, the newer marketplaces where it's less uh, saying like, oh, this is the only time we'll open up a category because <laughs> we're not dealing with, you know, physical shelf space. And so we can kind of uh, add things to our offering or add things to our platform, you know, uh, in a different sort of cadence, which, which both have their pros and cons uh, from a planning and execution standpoint standpoint. Um, Um, But certainly kind of traditional retail is operated in in that same way for most of the the kind of the recent history, that's for sure. I'd say, you know, there's uh, different levels of of understanding of the consumer that you have, right, when something's digital versus kind of when it's, you know, in physical retail. And that certainly kind of dictates some of what you do on the advertising side or kind of how you uh, kind of target certain consumers um, uh, with different kind of offers, and then I'd say, "You look when you think about kind of big box retail, um there's a great uh, tweet thread by Ryan Kolbeck, who was one of the founders of Circle Up and the CEO of mm-hmm. Circle Up, uh, which basically kind of says big box retailers kind of care about four things. they care about price, right? But if everyone's selling Cheetos, your margin goes to zero. They care about um, assortment. Do so you have the right things on shelf that consumers actually want? They care about convenience, uh, which is why they do deals with Instacart and others." Uh, to make sure it convenient for the consumer, and then they care about kind of banner coverage. So, like, do you have stores in different demographics and different geographies to kind of cover different. Um, um you know different kind of demographics, and so you know a lot of the way we think about it is is helping uh, you know larger retailers kind of solve for their and and marketplaces as well to to a degree is solve for assortment risk, right? Can we kind of be predicting product market fit and what consumers are going to actually want, and so reducing the risk of something them putting something on their shelves that actually isn't going to sell that well, and that's you know a lot of, of of what we're trying to do underneath the hood is making sure that we're solving for that and and putting something on shelf that consumers actually want and told us that they want uh, and want to buy, uh, and so it's not just just a, a buyer, you know, making a decision that, that um, uh, in, in the traditional sense, but actually using a bunch of this data to present to them around like, hey, here's why we think that this is going to work um, uh, down to the colorway of our packaging. You know, GUI is periwinkle blue because it tested 3x higher than in kind of any other colorway. And, you know, that's, uh, we can get to that granularity on our decisions to help making sure that what we're putting in front of consumers is, is you know, uh, increases their propensity to buy.
0: Interesting. I, I'm kind of curious to like dig in a little bit deeper into like, you know, because you're selling on all these different, different cha- channels, how the different occasions that you're targeting through each of them, um, when it comes to like the messaging in each of these contacts and each of these settings changes. So for example, if you look at some of the convenience delivery, you know, that kind of last minute kind of craving that I'm instant craving that I have right now, and, and how that factors into like, Trying a product like GUI is different than, you know, doing my weekly stock up on Instacart or, you know, inside of a store, um, a big box retailer. So, you know, how do you look at kind of those occasions across those different channels?
1: Yeah, I I think that's a really kind of insightful point and question. A lot of it, we think about the behaviors that are driving that consumer demand, right? Uh, And where in the day or kind of the sort of meal that that a consumer is, is um encountering and purchasing and, and and requiring uh or wanting these products for. And so that sort of dictates like the messaging of these products, the the sort of kind of marketing that we do uh to really kind of target those behaviors that like, you know, we've kind of discovered along the way as we kind of bring these things to market, knowing that um, you know, there's also a sort of set of products uh, that this interacts with, you know, like with GUI, there's there's certainly kind of ways in which you eat it, uh, you know, products that you pair it with uh, at certain times of mm-hmm. the day that kind of kind of help inform a lot of our messaging and and how we think kind of getting in front of consumers in the right way, uh, and also you know the sort of set of consumers that you know if they, they've opted and said like um, low sugar is really what matters to them, it's like okay, then there's a, a certain kind of consumer segmentation and consumer behavior around uh, that sort of kind of behavior that that we definitely know and and can kind of make sure that we're getting in front of them for, and so you know. The granularity of which we can do that varies by marketplace and and varies by, you know, and retailer, uh, other different kind of offerings. But also, it's knowing kind of what consumers shop where and and, uh, where do those kind of individual um, uh, marketplaces or retailers kind of cater to those behaviors.
0: Yeah. Have you played around with any kind of lower funnel uh, kind of advertising on some of these more digital uh, marketplaces and services to have higher attribution on on that kind of ad spend
1: Uh, here? I'll say we've experimented a lot, uh, and that we're learning a lot of what works and what works for different brands at different times. Um, I, I think it's not a, uh, there's no one size fits all. This works always for no matter what brand versus, you know, like you kind of said, different behaviors, different times of day, different purchasing uh, cycles, um, you know, and how you can target the best kind of certainly kind of vary.
0: So like kind of looking at kind of the, the yin and yang of, Kind of the digital versus the traditional landscape, you know, what do you think are some of the most broken aspects of kind of the current um, CPG slash retail landscape that have some of the biggest potential to really drive change in the industry that, you know, you kind of want to be part of that shift?
1: I think how they make their selection decisions, how how they figure out what sh- what should go in store, how they look at kind of data to inform it. Um, and so it's not just, you know, it can be more than just kind of spins data. Uh, I think you know, helping them understand innovation and kind of expansion. And so it's not just what's sold by the necessities of the world that's kind of going on shelf, but giving more and more new brands that are tapping into consumer demand the opportunity to kind of, you know, get in front of consumers. You know, I, I think we'll see more brands that are launched in the next five years than we have in the last 50, because you can tap into consumer demand in a much more discreet way, uh, you know, as they've kind of come online. But it's making sure that, you know, the, the partners and retailers that we work with, you know, are able to kind of tap into that and, and, and understand that what consumers demand is, is changing very differently. Um, It's not, it's not just adding like blueberry flavoring to, you know, existing product category and, and calling it innovation. It's saying like, look, what's happening in alt meat or uh, plant-based, you know, or kind of insert kind of these newer trends here uh, is, is really kind of taking hold and how do you kind of respond to that and making sure you're having the right products on shelves that consumers actually want. You know, again, I think a lot of that innovation sometimes was stifled or just, you know, um, was largely dictated about like what, what flavor could we add to kind of sell more of the same core underlying ingredients. And we're trying to take the shift of like, great, how do we think about these trends that consumers actually want and not just giving them more of the same, um, which is kind of what they've had, you know, largely before. And also see like maybe a little more transparency uh, and making sure that they're kind of very clear that to consumers about what it is that they're consuming, you know, what it is that they want to buy uh, and, and what it is that we're kind of putting in, in front of them as well. So, but I really think that kind of new innovation, how consumers like are discovering, finding, buying, um, and making sure that they're finding, you know, whether it's, uh, digital retailers or physical retailers, like they're finding those products, uh, that that's right for them, um, uh, kind of wherever they go.
0: When we look at this, I like, kind of, uh, relationship between like CPG and retail, like CPG conglomerates and retailers, like where does that kind of push pull kind of net out as far as like who is actually driving you know, the the demand or making these decisions around that kind of basic uh, insight of like, well, let, let's just add a blueberry flavor. Is that because the retailer is is demanding it from their supplier? Or is it because the CPG firm is saying, you know, we want to tap into this? Like, what does that kind of tug of war look like?
1: I mean, I think it's probably been a sliding scale or, or a pendulum over the years of kind of where that's coming from. You know, I think sometimes it comes from the retailer and say like, hey, you know, we see this sort of demand... We want to have a product in this category. At times, it comes from uh, from you know the the uh, CPG brand saying like, "Hey, you know, we uh, we want to expand out our product line, and by adding this flavor profile or t- uh, by adding this product line extension." And so, you know, I think and in, internally, does that come from marketing? Does that come from R and D? You know, I think there's another pendulum that happens within there too. And so, I think a long way to say, if it, I think it's varied over the years, or it is today. That's that's probably a little bit harder question for me to answer. You know, given given kind of what's transpired the last couple of years, but um, I think that's historically kind of the way it's operated.
0: So we look at, like towards the future, like other categories that you can expand to. Um, you know, right now it seems very much driven as like pantry staples, like spices or um, and spreads. What are some of the things that you're most excited about that are kind of coming down the pipeline? If you can share,
1: yeah. So I can certainly say what we're not, and we're not just going to be a snack company. We're not just going to be a center aisle or a pantry company. I mean, we really want to focus on on different avenues and aspects of, of where consumer demand is and where there's, like, you know, a willingness to pay for something uh, either new and different or certain kind of attributes that they that they really kind of um, uh, matter. You know, I think there's there's lots of interesting trends that are out there. You know, which ones we actually kind of tap into and and, and uh, bring to market is, you know, a little bit harder for me to say. Uh, you know, we've got a couple more brands that are going to launch later on this year. I, I think, you know, there's uh, a lot of new and interesting things on the diet side. I think, you know, if you look at kind of um, Olipop's around and some other things, so there's some great stuff that's happening around like gut health and probiotics. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you've seen the rise certainly of, you know, kind of everything from alt-meat to um, kind of, you know, plant-based proteins that are – that continue to kind of go out wider and wider. I just saw uh, like a, a – a, a plant-based lamb company that came out, which is pretty cool. Yeah, uh, there's certainly a lot that's happening in and um, kind of edible beauty. You know, th- that's you know around whether it's collagen or kind of turmeric or kind of other things um, that have certainly kind of taken hold. You know, Vital Proteins is a great example of that. Uh, and so, look, there, I think there's there's a lot of these trends that are taking hold. Certainly, more to come from us around where we're gonna we're going to tap into uh various ones and and kind of where we kind of build our brands but like i said we're certainly not going to be just a center aisle company or a uh a stacking company it's it's going to go pretty broad
0: yeah i mean there's, there's been so many functional brands that have popped up that you know are trying to you know make these claims around you know this will literally change your life you'll sleep you'll look like 10 years younger you'll sleep like a baby but you know, a lot of it, as as we know, is is all marketing driven. Like, how how do you look at kind of tapping into some of these trends, and also like kind of balancing it with kind of more uh, you know research and and development around like what these products actually do?
1: Yeah, I mean, if there's one that's going to make me ten years younger, sign me up. So like, <laughs> show me where that is, certainly. Look, I think we're not going to be at the cutting edge of like some new alt protein that's like supposed to do, you know, X, Y, and Z. I, I think we want to find more generally established ways that there's, you know, research and science behind uh, that we kind of tap into and, and be very cognizant of the claims that we're making, like that we're not going to be the arbiters of health and be like, this is this is the only way to do health. It's um, or to be healthy. I think it's more, uh, can you be transparent around the ingredients uh, and, you know, uh, the nutrition and and the things of that nature, so that like consumers can decide decide what's healthy for them, right? Like they can say like, great, there's a diet that works for me. That's you know, what's what makes me feel good and what makes you feel good. You know, is is radically different, right? Like one of us might have celiacs one of us might be, um, you know, dairy free. Um, you know, to kind of teach their own. And so I think just providing a level of transparency around the ingredients and and uh, the efficacy of, of of kind of any claims is it goes a long way. Uh, so that you can make that decision of, of what's right for you.
0: Yeah, I think that's really fair. Um, I I would love to hear kind of about, like what your take is on like the a lot of the copycat like nature of this industry like a lot of fast followers and people who probably see what you're doing with GUI and have you know either gone private label from the retail side or you know newer brands are branching into that. When I did a search into <laughs> hazelnut cocoa spread, which I you know until I actually found GUI, I didn't even know that this was actually a thing. I'm kind of curious like to track to hear like the evolution of that like. How many brands were in the space kind of when you started with the the concept and like how many brands there are now? Because I'm seeing countless brands, some established brands and some not established brands getting into that space.
1: Yeah, look, if we're doing it right, any space that we're going to go into is going to have competition because like. Uh, you know, other people will realize that there's a, there's an opportunity there, whether that's before us at the same time as us or, or after us. Uh, and to kind of each their own for kind of how they get there. You know, I think if we're doing it right, we're unlocking consumer demand because we're putting the right attributes, the right messaging in front of them and, and like, uh, kind of unlocking that willingness to pay. So I think it's it's a huge category like I mean Nutella is a, a massive massive company um and so I think there's plenty of room for 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 a bunch of us to kind of you know um, it takes some of that market share um uh, and so I think you know every up and comer kind of has their own spin on what they think is going to resonate with consumers and and totally respect that in terms of like the number that were there when we started versus today harder for me to say. Like, were there others out there, but maybe doing it with Stevia or doing it uh, in kind of a more of a pure vegan kind of offering? Sure. Like those t- definitely existed. Are there going to be more that launch, you know, afterward out? Also true. Uh, so long as we're kind of focused on, on our kind of first principles around like providing to consumers what it is that they actually want to buy, then, you know, hopefully that's resonating. And, and you know, we're, we're creating uh, a brand and a product that, that they want to consume lots of.
0: How big is that uh, figure as, as far as like the Nutella spread market? Like, what what is the addressable market there? You
1: know, we never actually look directly at TAM. I think there's there's um, it's hard to ever predict how big an individual brand is going to go. You know, there's probably like an invisible asymptote on most of these things of like, and who knows if that's you know ten million or hundred million? Like, it's probably you know somewhere in the mix. Um we we know that there's a ton of, of of tailwinds behind it we can see you know established brands that are, are large uh and that there is um consumer interest and willingness to pay and and that's you know more the focus around that than there is like hey is this a big enough TAM uh, to kind of go into right. like by by the very nature of what we're doing most of them should be well big enough to support a, a brand of of you know size and scale
0: yeah very very much like a bottoms up kind of approach versus like a top down yeah analysis um Looking kind of at private label and other retailers that you've seen out there that are doing it, um, who who do you think is doing an interesting job, or who do you look to as kind of for inspiration on that front?
1: I mean, look, I, I think most answers in this uh, to this question are probably the same, which is Trader Joe's. I mean, I think what they've done, you know. Everything but the bagel seasoning uh, and everything else that they've come out with is is pretty incredible. Uh, it's not just white label; it's kind of white label with with a twist, if you will. Uh, and so, really respect how they've used their consumer insight to develop you know products and brands that that um, resonate with their audience. I think they're they're a great uh, shiny example of it all, and not just saying like great white label is going to be you know the lower shelf and kind of the the, the low cost competitor, but actually saying like no, we're going to actually create our own products that you know are more in line with what consumers want. So, love what they've done.
0: Cool. Well, it's been really fascinating you know, chatting about all of these uh, analogies between software and CPG with you, Chaz, and, um, you know, really curious to see how Starday kind of evolves as the, kind of the modern next-gen conglomerate. I'd love for you to, to spend the next bit a few seconds here you know, plugging away. You know, tell us uh, if people want to work for Starday, how they can get in touch, and then on the consumer front, you know, if people are looking to try GUI Indulgence, how they can get, uh, find you guys.
1: Of course, uh, you know, there's a contact page on our website, you know, to reach out to us, uh, you know, if you're interested in, in kind of working for us or look me up on LinkedIn, always uh, happy to take a phone call or respond, uh, even if we're not hiring for a role right now, you know, never know how that's going to change in the future. And and so always open to those conversations that you can find, uh, you know, GUI um, and All day uh, on their respective websites uh, and GUI on Amazon as well. Purchase it, try it using anything from graham crackers to uh to bananas like you name it it's it's uh, great in a whole different host of things uh same with all day um one of my personal favorites is using fuego on popcorn it's a great combo uh, <laughs> uh one of those a little bit unexpected ones but it literally kind of works in everything so it's kind of your recipe in a jar so um, both of those sites uh, and from you can find them from our website of of um, stardayfoods.com as well
0: okay very cool and before we finally close out i'm kind of curious if you could kind of close out on some of your um, predictions on cooking at home versus dining out, like where where does, does that shake out kind of longer term as far as consumer behavior?
1: Cool, that's a good one. You know, we've certainly seen the rise of dining at home. I think that's, that, that, uh, continues to stick, uh, where consumers are just more conscious of what they're putting in their bodies and, and kind of, um, where that is. I'd say the reduced amount of travel in the last couple of years has definitely meant people are looking for more, you know, exotic cuisines in a lot of kind of the, what they order or kind of some of the reasons that they order out because they're, they're not experiencing that firsthand, uh, elsewhere. Uh, and so you're certainly having quite a bit of it, uh, dining out as well. So, um, where that nets out a smarter than my, man than myself could probably predict that, but uh, it's gonna be interesting to watch, watch how it all shakes
0: out. Very fascinating, very fuego. Thank you so much, Chaz. <laughs> appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks
1: so much, appreciate it.
0: Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please hit subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast. And if you're curious to get a firsthand look at the cutting edge of food and tech, check out hungry.tv. That's hungry with no you, where you can join in on live conversations like these or sign up for the free weekly newsletter.